0: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book about some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. For this episode, I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast Jules Boykoff, chair of the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University. Jules is something of our resident expert on the Olympic Games, He has been a guest twice before to talk about his ongoing research into the politics and economics surrounding the Olympics. And in his new book, which we discuss in this episode, Jules takes a lively and in-depth look at the whole span of the modern Olympics. From the start of the Olympic movement in the late 19th century, up to this year's summer games in Rio, and beyond, to the controversies surrounding the bids for future Winter and Summer Games. The title of his book is Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, published in 2016 by Verso Books. For the book, Jules did research in archives and libraries about past Olympic games, uncovering events in Olympic history that have been overlooked in most accounts. He also drew upon field research he did in Vancouver in 2010, London in 2012, and then last year in Rio as a Fulbright Scholar. Jules's book is a lively and illuminating history of the Olympic Games, and as always, it was a treat to talk with him about his work. Here's my interview with Jules Boykoff. Today's guest on New Books and Sports is Jules Boykoff. Jules, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bruce. So Jules has been on the podcast before. We've talked before about uh, two of your previous books, Celebration Capitalism and Activism in the Olympics. And as I recall, the last time we spoke, you were working on this this new book, Power Games. So I'll ask how this, this new book builds upon your previous work.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. It's a real treat and honor to be back with you, Bruce. So this book Book Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, definitely builds on some of the ideas from the previous books. So, Celebration Capitalism in the Olympic Games was about the political economy of the Olympics and how the games are structured economically. The other book, Activism in the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London, focused in specifically on the activist response to the Olympics, not just in Vancouver and London, but sort of wider response in the 21st century. And so those are elements or themes in this book, uh, Power Games. But in Power Games, I do a lot more archival historical research, and I do a number of interviews with both athletes who participate in the games, as well as um, people who are fighting the Olympics in various host cities. And I did a lot of traveling, kind of gumshoe work in the Olympic <laughs> cities in the lead up to and during and after Olympics. So. I guess there's some methods that I share with those previous two books that are academic books, uh, whereas this one tends to be hopefully um, a little bit less academic in tone, um, but still building from a lot of the methods that I use in my other research. Yeah, I was going to say, so this book is is intended for an audience outside of, uh,
0: outside of the academic guilds. And uh, in addition to being a... Uh, a political scientist. You're also a published poet, and and this book I noticed allowed you
1: to have uh, have a little more fun with your writing. <laughs> well, thanks for for noticing that. I mean, I, I have a. A lot of affection for playing with words and seeing what they can do, and so yes, this book allowed me a chance to maybe bring in a little bit of poetry here and there.
0: Yeah, no, it was fun to read. I, I I've read this book at the pool and at the beach, and and it held my attention. So this was a this was a good summer read. And uh, and the book starts with you have in in your preface. Uh, the story of how you first became interested in the political side of, of sports and and you've told this story uh, in your first podcast with us, which was already three years ago so but but that's been a while ago and it's a great story. so I'm gonna ask you to uh, to tell it again about your uh, experience
1: playing playing soccer and encountering politics and sport. Sure. well, I grew up in Wisconsin where the Olympics are huge, especially Winter Olympic sports. And so I grew up playing hockey and watching hockey, for sure. I cheered on uh, speed skaters like Eric Heiden, who I actually went to the same high school with, Madison West High School in Madison, Wisconsin. So I was weaned on a steady diet of Olympics growing up in Wisconsin. And all the while, I played soccer and kind of became more and more competitive with it as I got older. And, And eventually had the good fortune of playing for the U.S. Olympic soccer team in international competition. And my first international cap was against the Brazilian Olympic team in a tournament in France. So I got to face off against greats like Cafu and other terrific players. And one thing I noticed with the crowd at that match was that they were definitely cheering for Brazil, which, you know, I can understand. I I would cheer for Brazil probably, too, if I wasn't playing against them. But... (laughs) I also noticed that they seemed to be sort of cheering against us. And I was only 19 at the time, and I was tremendously naive about the way the world worked, about U.S. foreign policy, about all sorts of other things. But, you know, I definitely noticed. And so when we went on and played Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and even the Soviet Union – this was in 1990, Bruce – well when i when we played them we we kind of got a similar reaction. It was you know not exactly go u s a where we went so that really stuck in my mind at the time and helped me see that there's definitely bigger things going on than what's just happening on the pitch and that politics inflect the reception that athletes receive and even can, in some cases, uh, inflect what happens on the field. And so my young 19-year-old self went home and tried to figure some of these things out. And I guess you could say, in a way, that this book, Power Games, is kind of the culmination of that exploration. I mean, I would say one other thing that was really vital to writing this book, was I went up to Vancouver quite a bit in the lead up to and, and during the sort of extended Olympic moment in Vancouver, because it's just up the road from where I live in Portland, Oregon. And there were a number of poets who I know up there who were tremendously active politically against the Olympics and what it was doing to Vancouver during that time. And they really, I think, created a pivot in the history of the Olympics up there with their activism and raising lots of questions that really opened the floodgates of dissent Against the games and and created space to ask the kind of questions that that I ask in in power games. So in a weird way, you know, you mentioned poetry at the outset, it was really important to me because poets put me in touch with a lot of the political activists in town. And when I got to Vancouver, I could really hit the ground running. And so poetry did matter for the writing of this book.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm I want to ask about, uh, uh, before we get into the book, I want to ask about your experience as a as an elite athlete, and, and you said you played on uh, the U.S. Olympic soccer team, you played in international competitions in the U.S. Olympic Festival, but you didn't actually play in the Olympics. This would have been in the years before the, the 92 Olympics in, in Barcelona. And I want to ask about your experience. And, and I also, you know, I love watching the Olympics. I always have, since I was growing up next door to Wisconsin and Minnesota. And, you know, whenever you watch the games, the TV announcers, especially for the American networks, they speak repeatedly, especially with the medalists, the American medalists, about how they fulfilled their Olympic dreams and and how they, they met those dreams through desire and through will. Uh, in essence, the message is that that the American medalists wanted it more than the next person more than athletes from other countries. And I, and I always think when I hear that with, with announcers, well, you know what about the Olympic dreams of the athlete who finished 24th as opposed to the gold medalist? Or what about the Olympic dreams of an athlete like you who, Uh, who didn't make it to the games. And and so I want to ask, do you have a sense of when you watch the games, do we have a distorted view of what goes into making an Olympic
1: athlete? Well, hold on, Bruce. Let me just lay down on my couch here and get and get comfortable and and talk to you a little bit more no, actually, I'll be sure to send you my next uh, therapy bill that talk to you. the fact that I didn't play in the Olympics. thanks for raising that no let's just yeah i think I think if you watch the, the TV coverage uh, on NBC that you will see a decidedly u uh, s American vision. Of the Olympics. And I think they've become more conscious of that recently. And I think they've actually improved their coverage in certain ways. But, you know, you really do miss a lot when you focus on the sort of hyper competitive aspects of the Olympics. And I'm kind of hoping that maybe we'll get away from that a little bit this Olympics in Rio because. There's one group of athletes that are going there that really aren't expected to win a bunch of medals, but the fact that they're there is a really interesting story, and that's the team of refugees who will be competing in the Olympics. And maybe that will sort of swerve us away from the sort of hyper-competitive nature of coverage, uh, if just for a little bit, and allow us to see some of the amazing stories of athletes who've seen a lot and gone through a lot just to make it through the gates of the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I'm sorry for pouring salt on that wound. So. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, well, let's turn to the book and uh, and I guess the starting point for the Olympics and and also for your book is uh, is the founder of the modern games, Pierre de Coubertin. So, so I'll ask you, how does uh, Coubertin set the set the template for the modern Olympics?
1: Yeah, Baron Pierre de Coubertin was a man of contradictions. I mean, on one hand, he wanted to start the Olympics to toughen up. The young people of France in particular, because a lot of his desires around the Olympics emerged after the Franco-Prussian war defeat of the French. And he basically came to the conclusion that the French youth were becoming too flabby as he was prone to write about them in his work and that if they were to play more sports, it would toughen them up. And So that was part of the idea. On the other hand, he thought that the Olympics could bring peace because you'd have all these countries coming together and they could act out their aggressions in in a more peaceful, socially acceptable way. So a lot of his ideas worked in tension. I mean, he also had some extremely colonialist views, and and some of the stuff that he wrote about Africa was just sort of flat-out racist, and he was very pro-colonial and had a lot of negative things to say about the people that were living in the colonies, their educational levels, their abilities, so the Baron was a really tricky guy, and the, the more I dove into his writings, and that was one of the fun things about this book, is I just read his writings straight through, and one of the things that I found kind of fascinating was he was really behind the times on some things and maybe a little bit ahead of the times on the others. So, one of the things that he was definitely behind on was his view of women and their role in the Olympics. And he basically said that women were there to either one, you know, set the laurels on top of the men's Olympic champions' heads or two, to make babies, preferably boy babies, who who could become Olympic champions. And, you know, he never really came around on that issue, that's for sure. But, you know, he's ahead of the game in other ways. He he brought poetry and art into the olympics Mm -hmm. that was one of his big dreams in fact as a funny side story the baron actually won uh, the award for poetry at the 1912 olympics in stockholm he wrote under a pseudonym but it's largely thought that people knew who they were voting for for the for the prize so it was a poem called ode to sport in fact and It's kind of a flat poem, I must say, but it's also instructive because there's little sections in the poem about what sport could be. It could be beauty. It could be audacity. It could basically be anything for the Baron, and I think that takes us to his wider vision for the Olympics. So he's kind of a a bundle of contradictions, but he was vital in terms of energetically creating a foundation for the Olympics to flourish. And
0: one thing you point out is that right away from the start with the, uh, uh, the first Olympics in Athens in 1896... The baron uh, is lowballing the cost of the games.
1: Yes, absolutely, and and shifting it onto the the shoulders of the public. And it wouldn't even have come about were it not for the largesse of a a particular uh, economic baron, not an aristocratic baron of the time, who donated a whole bunch of money at the last minute to make those games happen. And you know, yet. That is really rare, actually, in the modern games of the 21st century because in the 21st century, the recipe is more that the public taxpayer money comes in and kicks in, not these huge private donors. So we've come a long ways in in multiple fashions since the early days of the games. Mm -hmm. So one of the the games that you do discuss
0: is not included on the official list of Olympic games, and that's the 1906 Olympics in Athens. Mm -hmm. And yet you write about this... uh, um, this version of the games is being particularly important.
1: Absolutely. And there is a discussion in Olympic academic circles as to whether to include it in the larger history of the Olympics. And I come down on the side that we should. And that's because the Olympics were really on their back foot in the early 1900s. The 1904 Olympics were kind of an across-the-board disaster for a wide range of reasons. First of all, they lasted for many months and people won Olympic medals, left, and didn't realize that they'd actually won. They were so disorganized. There was also this you know, incredibly racist attachment to the Olympics called the Anthropology Days, where indigenous people from around, around the world were treated extremely poorly. And these were the games in St. Louis, correct? that's correct the 1904 yeah. games in St. Louis and it was a long ways to London in 1908 and these games in 1906 in Athens played a vital role in kind of keeping the Olympics alive and they they had good turnout they had lots of people there and i also include them because some fascinating things happened at them that are precursors to later historical moments with the Olympics and one i w- would love to mention is At the 1906 Olympics, we saw the rise of an amazing athlete activist by the name of Peter O'Connor. And Peter O'Connor was from Ireland, and Ireland did not have a National Olympic Committee at the time, and so therefore he was forced to compete for Great Britain because Ireland was being ruled by Westminster at the time. Now, he was not at all happy about this, Peter O'Connor, because he was an anti-colonialist and anti-imperialist, And he was not exactly keen on the idea of Great Britain ruling Ireland, so he goes there And he's wearing a special jacket. I have a picture of that that the family gave me, the O'Connor family, that they refurbished for my book, Power Games. I'm really happy and honored to include that. And on his jacket, he's got this shamrock, and he's looking with determination into the camera. And he brought that determination to the track oval where he ended up winning a silver medal in the long jump. And at the ceremonies for the long jump, when the Union Jack got hoisted up the flagpole, he kind of went you know, slightly wild, and he ran over to the flagpole, He shimmies up the thing, he holds aside the Union Jack, and he waves an Aaron Gobrog, Ireland Forever flag, in its place, while his buddy, Con Leahy, stands at the bottom of the flagpole, (laughs) holds off police, and waves his own Aaron Gobrog flag. So, it's an incredible moment of Olympian descent at the actual games, and... We've seen other episodes of that that have gotten a lot more attention down the road. So I was especially honored to have that be part of the book because what happened, I I figured out who his granddaughter was outside of Dublin and I tracked her down and I actually went to their house. They had me over for tea and cakes and they pulled out the papers of Peter O'Connor and let me look through them. It turns out Peter O'Connor, this amazing track athlete, was also a meticulous note-taker and so Mm -hmm. he had all these articles that were written about him pasted into this scrapbook along with his commentary along the side, sort of a historian's dream to get access to this archive, you know. So they had me over for tea and cakes. They gave me a few hours with his papers. And, you know, this, they, they gave me this photograph as well to include. And when I was just in Dublin doing an event for Power Games, they came out to the event, and that, that really meant a lot to me. And they, they felt good about having the story included in the Olympics because, you know, they too are kind of, they, they believe that the 1906 Olympics should be included in the wider history of the Games.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's a great story.
1: Uh, I, I want to ask with, uh, Tong, was he present at the Athens Olympics then? Well, he actually stayed away from yes, okay. many of the early games, but, uh, technically he was president of the international Olympic committee at the time of those games. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cause I was going to say, cause even during his lifetime, uh, the games and, and the leaders of the Olympic movement, they
1: began to deviate from,
0: from his original idea, correct?
1: Yeah, he has a hard time keeping them under his control, and it's sort of a perpetual battle that he has, and he has to sometimes cash in his political capital that he's built up over time, for example, to get the Games to go to France, his home country. Um, But, yeah, it's a perpetual power struggle that he's involved in. But I would say, overall, he kind of comes out on top. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. So then looking at the leading figures in the Olympic movement after the baron, uh, really the most important is the, is the American Avery Brundage and, and scholars have access and you have used, uh, the, the archive with Brundage's personal papers. And and so I'll ask you what, what's the picture of the man? I I presume it, it wasn't as enjoyable as, uh, finding the collection of papers in Ireland over, over tea and cakes. What's, what's the picture of Avery Brundage that you get when you look at his, uh, personal letters and papers?
1: I'll tell you what, it is amazingly eye-opening looking at Avery Brundage's papers. Brundage was the head of the International Olympic Committee from 1952 to 1972, and before that, he was a high-level sport baron in the United States, so this guy held a number of positions of power in the U.S. Olympic movement, and he was a man of deep conviction, let's say, when it came to amateurism, when it came to mixing politics and sports, so for him, amateurism was everything, and he really felt like he was continuing the flame of Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who also believed strongly in amateurism. Um, but he also thought and said very often that politics and sports don't mix. And he kind of abided by that sort of fairy tale version of reality for his entire life and forced it upon everybody around him. Meanwhile, he was making heavily political decisions all the time like the games must go on in munich after the terrorist attack there and many other decisions that he made don't restore the medals to jim thorpe from the 1912 olympics you just go down the list so yes i had the good fortune of looking at his papers i went to western university in canada where i looked at him there they're also at the university of illinois but there's some really eye-opening stuff in his personal notes so for example he at one point puts forth this sort of very harsh social Darwinist viewpoint that says that medicine is essentially for the weak and we shouldn't have that. Basically they should just die off people. Holy cow. (laughs) Those kind of things. Yeah. I mean really harsh version of the world. Um, He also was absolutely against things like social security. He, He called people lazy and shiftless all the time. And he was also just a kind of a flat out racist and that, Came to light in 1968 in a more public way when the Olympic Project for Human Rights emerged. And that's the movement that kind of created space for that iconic activist. Moment at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City where John Carlos and Tommy Smith thrust their black gloved fists into the Mexico City sky. And so, the, one of the demands actually of the Olympic Project for Human Rights was to get rid of Avery Brundage, who people in that movement called Slavery Avery for his racist views. And, you know, and Brundage was also an anti Semitic person, and those, that comes out very clearly in his notes as well. And he was instrumental before he became the head of the international Olympic committee. He was instrumental in allowing the games to proceed in 1936 in Berlin, when there are a lot of people in the United States, Jewish people, but also their allies who are saying, we don't want to host the, have those Olympics in Berlin. We see what's coming down the political road here. And Brundage went over to Germany and got sort of wined and dined by the the German Olympic honchos and political leaders and came back and said, Oh, we have nothing to worry about with these Germans and in fact in his notes he praises the Germans and he said they they really had it going on in the nineteen thirties. And so I draw from a lot of his notes and and I have a lot of kind of shocking quotes from Brundage in this book Power Games. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: So back to this statement or Brundage's idea that that politics and the Olympics should always be be separate. This wasn't exclusive to him. This is something, uh, and you talk about this throughout the book uh, that that still holds with the leaders of the IOC. This this fiction that uh, politics and Olympic sport can somehow be kept separate.
1: Right. So I mean, I I just think that this is one of the big Olympic myths that's been. Pretty well punctured in recent years, but it still has some sway in some circles. But if you just sort of look at the Olympics and you see everybody march in behind their flags and you hear the national anthems, which drum up this sort of feeling of nationalism, we tabulate the medals tables. These all have political implications. You have political people running the Olympics, in Rio, the the face of the Olympics will quite likely be Eduardo Pais, the mayor of Rio, who's put forth all sorts of political capital to make these games happen. So in short, I mean, it's just sort of a fairy tale that the IOC long told itself around the evening fire that has just kind of been exploded as, as an obvious falsity. And I think we're healthier for that. In fact, I mean, I, I think that if we allow ourselves to escape the strong gravitational field of Olympic myth, and among them, must be this idea that politics and sports don't mix, if we allow ourselves to escape that gravitational field, thinking about the Olympics actually becomes a whole lot more interesting for us.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Jules, you mentioned some of the the key, uh, the key Olympics or key games in the history of the Olympics. You mentioned 1908 in London. Uh, you mentioned 1936 in Berlin. Uh, but you write in the book that the 1956 Olympics uh, were particularly crucial. Uh, why is that?
1: Well, I think they were important for a, a number of reasons. But the, the one I'll talk about is that the, it was a really interesting moment in in the history of the world. And a lot of what happened in 56 was sort of a proxy for these wider international relations of the time. And, you know, you you have a number of interesting moments in 1956, specifically, you know, in the, in the swimming pool and elsewhere that kind of point up larger things happening in society. And I think, 56 gives us a glimpse of of the future. They're obviously heavily politicized Olympics, and the people at the International Olympic Committee are having a hard time keeping control of of the narrative as it sort of spins out from from under their feet. And so I think 56 actually is, is an important stepping stone between 36, which we were just talking about, and 76, and in 76, you know, you see some of these dynamics that are, that are now part of the terrain of the Olympics come to full flower. And so, so 76 is really interesting. And in fact, I would argue 76 is the pivotal year if we want to understand the contemporary Olympics in the 21st century, even bigger than 1984. I would say that's for two reasons. One is Denver and the activists that came about to challenge those Olympics because Denver was initially awarded the 1976 Olympics, uh, the Winter Olympics, until activists across the political spectrum teamed up to say, no thanks, we actually don't want this thing. So fiscal conservatives in town in Denver, as well as environmental activists who are concerned about the ski runs that were going to be carved into the pristine mountains around the city, they teamed up and got a referendum on the ballot that they won, which basically defunded those Olympics and said public money would not be put towards them. And so the International Olympic Committee was forced to move those games to Innsbruck, Austria. And why I think that's important is because, well, first of all, it's the only time it ever happened in the history of the Olympics. And second, it really started raising the profile of the Olympics in the eyes of activists. And we saw that really take full shape in the 21st century. And I guess 76 is also important because of the summer games, which we're now just celebrating the 40th anniversary of. There's been announcements about Montreal summer games, you know, being this wonderful thing. Well, that's pretty interesting revisionist history because they were kind of a total debacle and and one that are really instructive to think about for considering Rio Olympics and recent Olympics in the 21st century. Because in 1976 in Montreal, Mayor Jean Drapeau, who's this charismatic guy, Said that the Olympics would only cost 125 million dollars, and unfortunately for the taxpayers of Montreal, that turned out to be wildly inaccurate. The games didn't cost 125 million dollars; they ended up costing one and a half billion dollars. And in fact, these Olympics weren't paid off for for 30 years. It took till 2006 for that to happen, and it's important because we have this pivot toward thinking about how taxpayers pay for the Olympics while private entities that are lurking about corporate sponsors and others are there to scoop up the rewards. And, you know, 76 had a really important effect on immediate aftermath as well, because there were very few cities after that that were keen to hold the Olympics. And so 1984, there were only two cities in the running for the 1984 Olympics, Los Angeles and Tehran in Iran. And in fact, Tehran dropped out, leaving only Los Angeles And then we have this really unique Olympics because Los Angeles in 1984 had more leverage over the International Olympic Committee than any host city before or really or since. And so they were able to extract all sorts of different things from the the International Olympic Committee, including not signing on the line for – cost overruns, which have become endemic to the Olympics. So I think if we skip forward from 36, 56, 76, we see really important things that have stuck with the Olympics and kind of been burrs in the side of the Olympics over time as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And, And I want to ask here, to get off the book, um... You know the 1970s uh, are really a, a low period uh, for the Olympics. You have the the terrorist attacks in Munich in 1972. You have the uh, the boycott of the Moscow Olympics led by Jimmy Carter in 1980. You mentioned the you know the huge cost overruns in Montreal in 1976. And uh, can I ask you, do you see the current period as as being similar to the 1970s in terms of uh, being a moment of crisis for the Olympics?
1: Well, I definitely think that right now the Olympics are in crisis, and I think it's for for slightly different reasons. Um, And I also think in certain ways the International Olympic Committee is on extremely firm economic footing today, whereas in the 70s they weren't. They were sort of fishing around for new sources of revenue, and, and they came up with the schemes that are still in place today, such as the Eventually coming up with the Olympic sponsorship program, the corporate sponsorship program, which takes shape in L.A. in 84, but really comes to full flower by the end of the 1980s and still is, exists today. Um, so I would say that there are, are some similarities, but the IOC has become a lot stronger economically since the 1970s, that's for sure. But we're definitely in a moment of crisis with the Olympics, no doubt about it. hmm
0: and so you mentioned the 84 Games as, as pulling the Olympics out of their funk and establishing something of a, of a new template uh, to how, in terms of how to finance the Olympics. Uh, you also write about, and other historians of the Olympics have written about, the 92 Games in Barcelona yeah. uh, as being significant. And, and why, why are the Barcelona Games important in looking at Olympic history?
1: Well, they're important because most people hold them up as the most successful Olympics in the history of the modern era in terms of following through with some of their wider development promises. The Barcelona Games did, in fact, make some significant improvements in the city. What's interesting when you look at the Barcelona model, as it's called from 92, is that it fit quite snugly in the wider development model of the region, and it raises questions like, was Barcelona perhaps a one-off, a very historically specific thing that happened, which would be very difficult to replicate? And, and I kind of come down on, yes, it would be. There was a perfect recipe that was laid out on the table for Barcelona to succeed. So what I mean by that is... Um. First of all, they were coming out of the Franco era, so coming out of this dictatorship where there was plenty of room for economic growth. They were reconnecting with Europe more widely, which was going to open up the possibility of tourism. And there was tons of room for tourist growth in Barcelona. And the Olympics kind of helped jumpstart that a bit. And so, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about Barcelona is that it was more than any other Olympics, the most equitable public private partnership. So we often hear from the 1990s, especially forward, that the Olympics are going to be funded with these public private partnerships. But unfortunately, those private part public private partnerships are incredibly lopsided in general. In Spain, in Barcelona, you saw 33% of the bill was footed by private companies. So, you know, a third of the Olympics was paid for by private entities. And in the history of the modern games, that's the best we have, actually. That's the least lopsided Olympics. So, you know, that was also, I think, a positive where the private entities involved actually paid a higher portion of the price tag. And that's not something we've seen in the wake of those games. But, you know, in short, what we saw at Barcelona was Um, The Olympics kind of worked more in service of the city, whereas with other Olympics afterwards, the city tends to work more in service with the Olympics. And the Olympics are kind of sometimes grafted onto, clumsily grafted onto the development that's already happening in the city, whereas in Barcelona, it kind of was nestled more, more handily inside of that. So was it the case that with, uh, with subsequent Olympics after
0: 1992, uh, did the leaders of, um, you know, p- the committees that were putting together bids to host the Games, would they point back to Barcelona and say, this is, this is what we can do in terms of having the, the public-private partnership and in terms of the benefits that it would bring to the city? And it's just the case that uh, as you say, this might be a one-off instance where actually what was promised was, was fulfilled?
1: Yes, definitely. Subsequent host cities, aspiring host cities, did use Barcelona as a, as a way forward with their own promises. You see this especially in Rio right now, in fact because they have four pods where there will be different athletic events around the city of Rio that is very much modeled after the different pods in the city of Barcelona. And you hear Rio's leaders talking about how these are going to be a transformative Olympics on par with, and even better than, they say, the Barcelona Games of 1992. So, yes, it's become part of the discourse around Olympic bidding in the wake of 1992, for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: So I want to ask about the uh, the 2002 Winter Games in in Salt Lake City, and and you write about these games as being important for a couple of reasons. One, these were the first games held after the 9/11 terrorist attacks, and and two, in the lead ups to, in the lead up to the games, uh, journalists broke news of the corruption involved in the bidding process. So so I'll ask you, how have the the Salt Lake City Winter Games uh, influenced? the subsequent decades of the Olympics.
1: Well, let's start with the first aspect you mentioned, and that is with the security forces that were brought together to host, uh, to police those Olympics, rather. And they were huge, and there was a huge spike in the amount of spending put forth. I mean, quite understandably, this was the first games after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, so it's what we would expect to see a, a rise in concern, And so you definitely see if you make a chart of the spending on security, there's a big spike after uh, this games and onward. And and that's become the sort of new normal is tons of spending, on, on the Olympic security, a billion in, in Vancouver in 2010 just on security. And we'll see 85,000 troops in Rio policing the games there. That's double the number that we saw in London. But the other thing was the sort of gobsmacking, staggering, uh, corruption that came out through that. I mean, there was some amazing stuff that was happening. The basic, basically the Salt Lake City organizers were kind of, Creating a sort of full blown, blown scholarship program for members of the IOC. If if you were a member of the IOC, you can send uh, one of your family members over to get like a joint replacement or to get cosmetic surgery, and all on the on the bill of the Salt Lake City bid committee. So it got kind of out of control. You know, shopping sprees, tickets to the Utah Jazz basketball games. You know, a $524 violin, no problem. It's it's all yours. And this came out later, and and so a lot of changes happened i mean not enough i would say but one of the big changes was that in the wake of the scandal we with the the international olympic committee we saw cut out the the visits that were happening where a lot of this corruption was occurring so you couldn't just drop by the olympic city to check it out on your own um this had to be highly supervised activity they cut out these visits so um so yeah it was important for both of those reasons absolutely so the
0: bidding process has been somewhat cleaned up, you would say, in terms of corruption. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I think there have been some significant strides. I think cutting out those visits was was huge with that. Um, but I mean, there's so there's the illegal corruption, but there's also you know the more legalized corruption, if you will, that that are still sit pretty endemic inside of of the process and. I would point to some serious problems inside of the way that the games are voted on and and the w- way it plays out. I mean, basically if you're a member of the International Olympic Committee You can look at all these technical reports about, you know, for example, like what we were talking about with Barcelona. Does the plan of the city fit within a larger plan of development for the region? Does the Olympic plan fit within the larger plans of the city? You can look at that stuff if you're on the International Olympic Committee now as you get ready to vote. Then you can just toss it over your shoulder and say, oh, well, I don't care. I like Vladimir Putin. Good guy. I'm voting for Sochi, right? So – you know, there's there's huge problems that haven't been addressed, but I think getting out some of the totally obvious illegal corruption uh, was was a positive thing, and it, it helped clean up the the brand, if you will, of the Olympics. But I should also point out, I mean, a lot of this corruption was happening well before it got burst onto the public radar in two thousand two. In fact, of the nineteen ninety eight Nagano Games in Japan there was serious corruption going on there alleged but we don't we can't even find out because they basically shredded all their documents afterwards that would have allowed us to really find out the depths of the corruption same thing with sydney in 2000 where all of a sudden these mysterious donations were made to sport programs in various african countries that happened to have international olympic committee members on them so you know this kind of corruption was happening before mm-hmm. salt lake city it should be pointed out i think mm-hmm.
0: Now you also write about a different kind of corruption, so not not uh, you know passing gifts and cash to to a member of the IOC to support your bid. Uh, you look at, and this is particularly the case with Sochi and now with Rio, that the corruption has moved to the local level and the national level with with crony contracts mm-hmm. for
1: building infrastructure and, and venues. Absolutely, I mean, with when you have this kind of money passing through the system, you set up a contract system that will benefit well-connected economic and political elites. There's no doubt about it. And because the scale of Olympic projects is so huge, that means that only highly sophisticated, well-connected companies that have sort of legions of lawyers that can fulfill all these tight regulations that are required, it's only those companies that can even really bid on these with any success. So There's no, like, local construction firm that has a chance except perhaps as, like, a a second-tier subcontractor for one of these bigger companies that's well-connected. So we saw with Sochi how this can play out. I mean, it's an extreme example, of course. Just to step back a second, I mean, Sochi was supposed to cost $12 billion, but the Sochi Olympics in Russia ended up costing more than $50 And some people who uh, have analyzed the numbers have suggested that around $30 billion is, was siphoned off in the kind of corruption around construction that we're talking about. $30 billion, okay? I mean, that's that's kind of incredible. So, I mean, that was extreme, but you see it in other aspects. I mean, even in Rio, look, look at the people. The sports minister, the newly named sports minister, has a gravel company, who is benefiting directly from the olympics providing gravel to some of the olympic sites and you know you might think that's a conflict of interest but you know it doesn't appear to be in rio right now he's just kind of moving right along and that's just a minor example of the well connected economic elites in in rio and around the city of rio who are cashing in big time right now from the rio olympics let's not forget you know while the everyday people of of rio and other olympic cities don't tend to benefit from the olympics certain people do and it's those well-connected political and economic elites i mentioned who are from the front of the line for this
0: so, Jules, let's let's uh, move to the to the Rio Olympics. And uh, you were a Fulbright scholar last year in in Rio, looking at uh, the city and the lead up to the games. and uh, And I want to ask you. I mean, pretty much every day now on my web browser, my Twitter feed, there are stories about basically how the Rio games are going to be a disaster, whether due to pollution or the Zika virus or crime or what have you. Uh, but, you know, we saw similar stories before Sochi, that, that the Sochi games were also uh, badly organized, badly managed. They're going to be a disaster, and, and the games went off. The competitions happened, people won medals, and, and people attended the games and had a good time. So, so I'll ask you, um, you know, based on what you saw in Rio, are these stories scaremongering or, or do you, based on what you saw and what you studied... Do you have real worries about uh, the Olympic Games coming up in in a few weeks?
1: Well, as you said, I did live in Rio from August through December 2015 as I was finishing writing Power Games, actually. And so I got a firsthand look at the pre-Olympic city. And you're right. Some of the things that we see happening in Rio are similar trends to previous Olympics. And there's also a tradition, I think it should be said, in brazil more widely to finish things at the last minute we saw that with the world cup of men's soccer that happened in 2014 so there is a little bit of that going on in rio many people i talked to thought all these things will get done they won't be perfect but they'll be fine so if we limit our attention to athletes and how that all plays out i would imagine everything will go pretty well i mean it would take incredibly seismic incompetence to blow that. I mean, you've got everything pretty much set in place for the venues. So, I mean, I think if we limit our attention to what we see on the TV screens of NBC, uh, everything will probably come off okay. The one glitch in that could be the water situation for athletes, because the water in Rio is horrific, and when I was there a couple of weeks ago, I traveled around Guanabara Bay where they will be holding sailing as well as uh, Olympic windsurfing. And it's absolutely disgusting, Bruce. There's really no getting around it. I mean, it smells like you're you're sitting next to an open sewer. I went to areas around Guanabara Bay where there are carpets of Uh, water bottles, broken toys, just generalized trash, animal carcasses, punctured soccer balls, these carpets of trash that are essentially strangling the mangroves that surround Guanabara Bay and serve as a natural filter. And so it's just absolutely disgusting. In fact, I interviewed, when I was living there last fall, I interviewed who, uh, Brad Brooks, who at the time was the AP bureau chief. And, and he said, I asked him, hey, well, what grade would you give the organizers on environmental stuff? And he right away said, oh, I'd give him an F. There's, there's no hesitation in his voice whatsoever. He called it an environmental crime, what was going on in Rio, and said, we're, ho- we're going to hold the Olympics in this environmental crime. And I think he's right. So the one glitch could be that if an athlete got sick, that could change the game in a pretty major way. And and let's just say, it wouldn't be hard for an athlete to get sick because if you accidentally imbibe three teaspoons of this water, three measly teaspoons, then you have a 99% chance of contracting a virus, okay? If you're an open water swimmer in Copacabana, which has these polluted waters, it's not going to be that difficult to inadvertently gulp down three teaspoons of water. And so if an athlete gets sick, we might see a different type of coverage around the Olympics and it really could change things. I would just have to say, though, I mean, if we widen our scope and think about false promises that were made to people of Rio, well, that's really not going to be fixable. Whether that's going to be on the the screen for us to actually think about in a serious way is another question. But there were huge promises given to the people of Rio around water. So if you look at the 2009 bid that was put forth by Rio bidders, they said that 80% of the water flowing into places like Guanabara Bay would be treated for human sewage. And that just simply has not happened. I mean, we have about 21 percent, according to a recent media report by Stephanie Nolan at the Globe and Mail, 21 percent of the water is being actually treated for human sewage. that's entering places like Guanabara Bay. So that's a massive, broken promise to the people of Rio. And I think it's important to talk about those promises If the Olympics want to be all they can be, they need to start figuring out ways of being more accountable to the local populations who go well out of their way to throw a lavish street party for the uh, sort of privileged sliver of the global 1% who will, will come into Rio to enjoy the games. and. So I, I think that's an open question. And, and I wouldn't be surprised this year if maybe we'll see some of those stories creep into the mainstream media because it's been so extreme, some of the things we've seen in Rio. I mean, body parts were just washed up not too far from where they're going to hold beach volleyball along Copacabana Beach, like mysterious body parts that we didn't know who they belonged to. So, you know, this is an extreme situation in some ways that might break the mold of Olympic coverage and widen what we think about when we think about the Olympics. And I actually... Think that would probably be a positive thing overall in terms of just having healthy skepticism in a wider, deeper conversation about the Olympics and what they mean for everyday residents of the host city.
0: And I wanted to ask that, Jules, because I mean you've been doing research on on the Olympics and problems within the Olympics for a number of years now, and uh, and now do you finally see that that these years of work that you've done in research are are I don't want to say bearing fruit, but that people are finally listening to what you've been saying and, and others have been saying for a number of years, and and finally the media is paying attention to problems that have long been uh,
1: in the Olympic Games. There are many amazing act, uh, act, activists who have opened up the doors on these questions, but there are also many, many academics who've been toiling away doing really important research for a long time and I've benefited from their work in major ways. So this has definitely been a team effort on the part of people doing this kind of research. But I think that we've actually seen these two streams come together where the diligent, rigorous studies of academics on the economics and political impacts of the games have finally been getting more attention in the media and activists have become more fully aware of the arguments that have be- that are being made in academic circles and so with those two streams coming together we have there's a lot of power in the arguments against these promises that are being made and not followed through with the Olympics and so yes we're I think we're experiencing an incredible moment right now with the Olympics and I've seen things change pretty drastically even over the last 5 or 6 years in terms of how we talk about them and maybe a shorthand way for thinking about that is how Mitt Romney um, talks about the Olympics even. Mitt Romney, the former Republican candidate for president, who I think it should be said, helped nudge the scandal racked 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City across the finish line. He was recently asked about the Boston 2024 bid, which eventually went sour, as many of your listeners will know. But he was asked about that, and he said, yeah, I support the bid. I think it could be good for the people of Boston. It be a lot of fun. But we should be aware that it, the Olympics, he said, are not a money-making proposition. And I thought to myself when I heard that, I thought, my goodness, we've come a long ways in terms of thinking about the Olympics and the Olympic movement. Of the people like the at the IOC, they have to be aware of this because they can't. They're having a much more difficult time getting legitimate, strong bidders to come in and weigh in and hope for the games. I mean, look at the 2022 Olympics that were just awarded to Beijing. There was a big field of candidates that were interested in hosting, but they slowly winnowed away every time there was a little shred of democracy kind of rearing its head and citizens or local politicians were given a chance to weigh in. They said, thanks, but no thanks, whether it was in Krakow, uh, Poland, or whether it was in Stockholm, whether it was in a couple cantons in Switzerland and other places. they the People said, no, we don't want the Olympics. And I just think, that has really demonstrated how far we've come with thinking about the Olympics. And I think that that's good because we're finally having an honest conversation, at least in some circles, about the negative effects that Olympics can have on host cities and um, that's the only way we're going to get real change moving forward. Yeah. So
0: I had asked about that earlier, saying, you know, do you see the current period as similar to the 70s when you you would have one or two cities bidding for, uh, for the games for each round? And uh, I'll ask in the wake of what happened with the 2022 Winter Games. And then, with with Boston uh, being pressed really by a popular movement to to end its candidacy for the twenty twenty four Summer Games, is in your view, is the IOC going to be able to find cities in the future to host the Olympics?
1: Well, they might just be relegated to working with authoritarian cities. And we saw that with the 2022 Olympics, where the two finalists were Beijing, which I mentioned, but also Almaty, Kazakhstan, a kind of new kid aspiring on the Olympic block here, right? So um, those were the two choices, both of them very authoritarian countries. And that's maybe the path forward. Um, the, The flip side of that is that you might get some democratic candidates, but they will have to become more authoritarian, and we've seen that with the rise in, in intensity of policing around Olympics. They'll have to become more authoritarian to host the Olympics. I actually think that, you know, for your listeners who who want to think ahead a little bit, that the, the bidding around 2024 is absolutely something to keep an eye on. So in fall 2017, after these Rio games, the International Olympic Committee will convene and they'll vote on who gets to host in 2024. There are only four cities left for those summer games that are bidding, and those are Los Angeles, Paris, Rome, and Budapest. And most people who follow Olympic bidding don't think that Budapest is putting forth that strong of a bid. So then there's Rome, and there's a newly elected mayor of Rome, Virginia Raggi, who's been tremendously critical of the Olympics and the idea of hosting them. In fact, she she set her candidacy on... The pedestal of anti-Olympism and she won. So in fact, she just actually recently met with the Pope where reportedly they were talking about how unethical the Olympics are. So that's going to be a tough road to hoe for, for the Olympics there. So that leaves Paris and Los Angeles. And with all of the atrocious terrorism we've seen in across France, that's raised the the question of whether you know France or Paris is is ready to host something like the Olympics, which is an, is a big terrorist target as we've been talking about. And then even there's Los Angeles, where what if there's a Donald Trump who wins, and that would make that candidacy much less appealing uh, to many of the sort of um, cosmopolitan elite who make up the International Olympic Committee. So all the all the aspiring host cities for 2024 have issues, but where it could get really interesting is if it comes down to Paris and Los Angeles, those cities, if they just put their heads together could actually probably extract the kind of leverage that no host city has had since Los Angeles in 1984. Whereas I said, Los Angeles in 84 did not sign on the dotted line to, to cover cost overruns. Instead, you had the United States Olympic committee and the privatized uh, company that was running the Olympics and organizing in Los Angeles that did. And so given the fact that every single Olympic since 1960 has had a cost overrun, this could be important for 2024. If Paris and Los Angeles say to the international Olympic committee, you know what, neither of us are going to sign on that dotted line. And maybe you all need to figure out ways of kicking in more money for this. That's where things could get really interesting. And we could see a a sharp uptick in the kind of change that I think is necessary for the Olympics today. Mm
0: -hmm. So Jules, we're almost out of time. And I want to ask following up on, on that last point you made, uh, and and this is something you stress in all your books and you stress it at the beginning of, of this book. You're not opposed to the Olympics as, as an athletic event and, and you don't want to see the Olympics go away. Uh, what is it that you would like to see happen in terms of how, uh, the Olympics are organized and run?
1: Well, I wouldn't mind if the Olympics took a break for a couple of years. I actually thought they had a good chance to just take a break around the 2022 Olympics and uh, take a step back and really look at their priorities. But you're right. I mean, I think it's also unrealistic because the Olympics are not going to stop, even with all the changes that we've seen recently, unless something really crazy happens that we can't foresee. So I guess in terms of moving forward, I think – For starters, we need to figure out ways of of reeling in costs and figuring out ways of spreading the economic benefits to everyday people of the Olympic City. Right now, basically, the Olympic economics are trickle-up economics, and the people who benefit are those who are already doing quite well in their respective host cities. And we need to figure out ways of organizing the contracts and relationships from the beginning where the money that does flow through the Olympics flows to a wider range of people who, as I say, are giving up a lot to host the Olympics, including their taxpayer money, uh, but also many things shut down during the Olympics, which curtails income for everyday people and, and creates all sorts of other problems. So controlling the costs has to be at the top of the agenda moving forward. I would say also, secondly, we need to figure out ways of having host cities become more accountable. And I think the International Olympic Committee has a vital role to play in that, meaning when you make promises on the front end about water quality, as we've seen in Rio, you absolutely have to follow through and you have to set aside money to make sure that that happens. And the International Olympic Committee has to make an effort to actually make sure that these things happen and play some sort of role in terms of watchdogging. Because otherwise, these Olympic promises just kind of flame out and they never come to be. So we need to figure out about that. And then, you know, another thing I would say is we need to have the process be more transparent, the voting process. As I was mentioning before, you can just – if you're an IOC member who's voting, you can just forget about all these technical reports and just vote for whoever you like or just randomly vote, pick a straw and vote. And that's not the way it should be. You should have to stand up next to your vote and you should have to – you know take responsibility for it, and we 're just not seeing that today, so I think you could democratize the process of voting within the i o c you know and last, I think they could rethink some of the sports and get rid of some of these sports that are extremely expensive that are only good for rich people basically I mean, look at dressage, for example, equestrian events where you have horses that need seventy thousand dollars worth of care every year. Well, who can do that? Uh, Well, actually, Mitt Romney can do that. He had a horse in the 2012 (laughs) Olympics, didn't win a medal. The horse was named Rafalka. Um, But it's people like Mitt Romney who can participate in dressage or horse ballet. Um, But, you know, we need to figure out ways of of helping the Olympics actually live up to its big promises in its Olympic charter and its big aspirations and stated goals and and principles. So how could you have more sports that don't require such incredibly high levels of input? You know, one thing I've suggested is maybe bringing back the the tug of war, which. Yes, yes. (laughs) Bring it back, I say, because it was actually pretty popular in the early days of the Olympics. And basically you need a rope. So muscly people, and you can have every country participate in the tug of war, and it was a really popular event. So, with the spirit of that is that you know you bring in more countries to participate, and you have more exchange, and that seems to me to be a positive way forward. Mm-hmm.
0: So, lastly, Jules, uh, what what event when the games start? What event do you look most look forward to watching?
1: Well, actually, this year I'm going to learn about fencing in much more detail because there is an athlete from Team GB, Team Great Britain, named Lawrence Halstead, who I will be rooting for vociferously during these Olympics. Lawrence Halstead recently wrote an essay in The Guardian that said that he's concerned about the path of the Olympics for many of the reasons that you and I have been talking about here today, Bruce. And and Lawrence Halstead wrote in The Guardian that athletes should not just sit idly by, that if you see injustice, you should speak out about it. And he's concerned about sustainability issues, but also these false promises that, I've, that we've been talking about. And he's caught a lot of flack for it. And I encourage your listeners to check out the essay that, that he wrote for The Guardian and to maybe stand up in solidarity with them. So I'm going to be cheering on fencing, of all things, this year. And you know I'm also going to be cheering on uh, women's soccer, the United States team, because they've been standing up courageously around pay equity issues. And so I'm hoping that they will do well on the on the field again this year as well. So I have a lot of people I'm rooting for, mostly for political reasons. But, but hey, I'm a political animal. What can I say? All right. Jules, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Bruce. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Jules Boykoff about his book Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics published by Verso Books in 2016 New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, history, and more Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subject you're interested in. If you'd like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash books and sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.